So imagine that a train is barreling down a track and there are five people who are bound on that track and you don't have time or the means to untie them. However, you are in a position to throw a switch on that train track. Some of you are going, I remember this from my moral philosophy class. You're in a position to throw a switch, diverting the train onto another track, and you'll be able to save the five people. The problem is, on this other track, is one person who's bound as well. So here's your choice. Should you let the five people die or make an active choice to kill the one person? Now, depending on your philosophy of moral ethics, it'll kind of govern how you make that difficult call. The trolley problem, as it's known in the literature, is one of the most famous thought experiments in all of moral philosophy. And there's plenty of them out there. If you just, if you want to like spend your afternoon thinking through moral philosophy, just Google famous um, moral dilemmas and knock yourself out. I mean, there's as, there's as many as you can dive into. You see, in a moral dilemma, a person is faced with and is required to choose between two unfavorable alternatives. And it's, they seem condemned to make a moral failure no matter what they choose. Either choice we make in those situations has negative consequences, and the answer isn't easily discernible. That's why it's called a moral dilemma. And the conflict and the tension of the situation mixed with the reality that there are real consequences for making a choice, or in this case, not making a choice. That's what makes moral dilemmas weighty and difficult. This morning, we're looking at the life of Tamar, one of the great-great-grandmothers of Jesus. And now she is as unlikely a candidate to appear in this royal genealogy of Christ that would, that would be a forerunner to the Savior of the world. She has no pedigree. She doesn't come from this great family background. She's a Canaanite. And she's grafted in to this dysfunctional family. In fact, I don't know if you've read through a lot of children's Bibles. I've got five kids. I think I've read them all. Genesis 38 doesn't make it into any single children's Bible. It's the most sexually explicit chapter in the, in the Bible. It's something like if you were to combine Jerry Springer and the sister wives. That's what this story really is. It's a story filled with brokenness and deception, judgment and death, victims and perpetrators, guilt and shame, and yet it ends with redemption and restoration transformation and promise, and the birth of a son that points to Jesus. See, Genesis 38 points us to the reality that in the midst of despair, God brings hope. He covers our shame with his love, and in the darkness, he enters in, not pointing to some other light, but he enters in as the light himself. And as we walk through the story, we're going to see three things. We're going to see the rejection of Tamar. We're going to see the risk of Tamar. And finally, we're going to see the redemption of Tamar. The redemption, the risk, and, uh, the re- rejection, the risk, and the redemption. Now, before we get into the present passage, it's important to feel the weight of this and do a little bit of background on Judah and his family of origin. Now, if you've read through Genesis before, you'll realize that Judah's great-grandfather is none other than Abraham. 
Like, even if you don't know much about the Bible, you know, Abraham's kind of a big deal. Like, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had father. You've heard that, right? Like, he's a big deal. That's his great-grandfather. Now, the reason he's a big deal is because God appeared to Abraham and said, listen, I'm going to make your family into a great nation. When he didn't even have a kid yet. He was old, and he was near 100 years old. He hadn't had a kid, and he says, guess what? I'm going to make your family line as numerous as the stars. And through your family, the whole world will be blessed. In fact, my plan of redemption and restoration for the whole world is going to happen through your family. It's a big deal. Now, for us standing on this side of the cross, we know that Jesus becomes a direct descendant of Abraham and Judah. So as we go through this passage, you go through the whole Old Testament, there's supposed to be this question in the back of your mind as you read going, God, how are you going to use this family, this nation to restore and redeem the world? Because every episode, every chapter you come to, you realize this family is jacked up. How could God use this family? At some point, you just think God would go, hey, we had a good run, Abraham, but I got to move on. I got to find another family. There's no way I can work through your family anymore. Now, when we come to this passage, we're going to be looking at about 20 years in the life of Judah and his sons. Now, Judah is the fourth son of of, of his father, Jacob. You got to realize when Jacob was a teenager, he conned his father into giving him the birthright over and above his older brother Esau. Well, that doesn't go well with Esau, and he starts to come after him to kill him. So Jacob is on the run for his life, and while he's on the run, he meets a pretty girl. Only problem is he finds out that's his cousin. But it doesn't matter. He goes after her anyway. He falls in love. He works for her hand in marriage for free for seven years to his deceitful uncle Laban, who on the night of his wedding night deceives Joseph, tricks him into marrying his, uh, her older sister Leah. And so the way the Bible says it is that, behold, in the morning, it was Leah. And he's thinking, what just happened, right? He works another seven years for free in order to get the love of his life Rachel. Now, Jacob loves Rachel and he despises Leah. Not only did he not like her before, but after not having worked 14 years for free, he really doesn't like her. And yet, Rachel is barren. She can't give birth to any children. But Leah, man, she is having kids like it's her job, because literally it was. She has six sons in total. You add four more sons from these other two concubines, we're not even going to get into that. But it makes the case for the sister's wife, I mean, as if the whole sister wife thing wasn't dysfunctional enough, there's these two other concubines. So if you're doing the math, that's 10 sons. And after a long season of waiting, Rachel finally gives birth to Joseph, who becomes the apple of Jacob's eye. Then she gives birth to one more son, and she dies. If you're tracking with all that, that's 12 sons, two wives, and two concubines. Now imagine, step into Judah's home as a kid growing up. Your father clearly despises your mother. He uses her for children. And who does he go home to every single night? Back to Rachel, his beloved. Jacob went to Leah for what she could give him, but never gave her what she needed. Imagine what that does to a child, watching that happen every day. 
Not only that, the Bible tells us that his father clearly favored Jacob. It wasn't even a secret. You know how sometimes parents have a favorite, but they don't let on to it. They're like, no, no, I love all of you equally. Jacob was like, no, 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 seriously, I love Joseph the most. In fact, I'm going to give him this awesome technicolor robe just so that every time you see it and all its brilliance, you remember, I love Joseph more than I love you. Think about what that does to a kid. There's no confusion over who the favorite is. And as Judah and his brothers look to their father for affirmation and acceptance, just love, maybe just a simple acknowledgement that they exist. Joseph is out flaunting the fact that his favored status is with his father. It just rubs salt into their already bleeding father wounds. Their resentment is palpable. And so what do the brothers do? Eventually, they can't take it, and they come up with a plot to kill Joseph. Now, in the middle of their plan, Judah says, hey, if we kill him, what good is that to us? Look, there's a caravan coming of Ishmaelites. Let's sell him into slavery. At least we can make a buck and let them do with him whatever they're going to do. So he does. So he dabbles in some human trafficking. They cover Joseph's robe in blood, spin a story telling Joseph, uh, spin a story telling Jacob that he's been that their beloved son has been brutally ravaged by animals, and it breaks Jacob. Jacob the deceiver becomes deceived by his sons, and they just sit back and watch as their father agonizes in grief over the beloved son. And you thought your family was jacked up? This is the most, this family defines dysfunctional. I mean, think about it. Where did Jacob's sons learn to manipulate, control, and deceive? They learned it from their dad. We got to realize our family of origin is a powerful influence on our lives. One of the most profound questions you could ever ask yourself is, where did I learn that? Where did I learn that? See, so much of who we are is shaped by the families and the homes that we grew up in. And if we don't deal with the pain and the simple habits that we picked up, we are bound to repeat them again and pass them on to our children. All right, getting back to the story. What does Jacob do? As he loses his son, does it cause him to to reach out to all of his sons and say, I'm so grateful and thankful that I have you? No. No. He takes all of the favor and love that he had for Joseph and he places it on his last son from Rachel, Benjamin. Judah can't take it. He says, you know what? I'm out. I'm out on this family. The rejection is too much. And he leaves his family and he heads to Canaanite territory and he marries a Canaanite woman. And that's where we pick up in our story. You see, as he heads down to Canaan, it's essentially him giving the double bird in the rearview mirror as he drives away. You see, the Canaanites were a despised people. They were the, the, the public enemy number one to Abraham and his family. And it was forbidden for any of the descendants of Abraham to marry a Canaanite woman. They said, marry whoever you want, but do not marry a Canaanite. He's written his family off. He's grown callous to the promises of God. And he says, oh yeah, there's something I'm not supposed to do? Great, I'm gonna go do that one thing, Right? And he goes and he marries a woman. We don't even know her name. And they have three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. The Bible says that the final son, Shelah, was born in a town called Kazib, 
which means town of lies. And if you are paying attention to the story, this is a bit of providential foreshadowing about what's to happen. Now we pick up the story in verse 6 and 7. Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. It's shocking. Here we meet Tamar. She's a Canaanite. She's got no choice in the matter. She's arranged to be married to Judah's son, Ur. And the only thing that we know about him is that he was so wicked that the Lord had to put him to death. It's probably not a stretch of the imagination to assume that if this guy was so wicked that the Lord had to intervene, that marriage to him was less than pleasant. And in one sentence, as quickly as we meet Tamar, she's a childless widow. Now, we're not told the exact nature or the gritty details of, of Ur's wickedness or even the manner of his death, but let me suggest something. For a God who has who's revealed himself as slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, merciful and forgiving, we have to come to the conclusion that his wickedness was so profound that God righteously judged him for it. And it shocks us. A lot of times when people read this passage, they ask, how could a good, loving God just take him out like that? And respectfully, I think it's the wrong question to ask. We should be asking, How does a loving and good God not take all of us out like that? All of us are guilty. See, most of the time, God withholds judgment for sin at the end of what we might think of as a normal life. Everybody at the end of their life, kind of they meet their maker, they come and face judgment. But there are times in scripture where there is this, this more instantaneous kind of judgment. Again, we don't know all the particulars, But what we do know is that God, by his very nature, is loving, he's good, and he's just, and he always acts in accordance with his nature. Accounts like this in the Bible are meant to shock us, and they're meant to cause us to confront the fact that we are so glib towards our sin. So glib. We're we're challenged to adopt a serious posture towards the seriousness of our sin. Because the reality is that all of our sin deserves death. God has the right and the responsibility to judge sin. No judge, if he's good, can overlook sin, and certainly the perfect judge can do no less. We should be shocked and amazed and grateful that God would forgive any sin, much less be willing to bear the punishment for the sin himself to extend life to us who don't deserve it. You see, he could punish each and every single sin in that moment with instantaneous death and be fully justified for doing so. That he does not, that he delays, that, he, that he's patient, shows him to be a God who is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Okay, back to the story. Ur's death leaves Tamar a childless widow. If she remains childless, not only will she be considered a failure, but it's very likely that she will end up destitute. See, widows in this culture uh, did not have the, the ability to go just get a job on their own. And so to ensure that widows were provided for in this culture, many uh, cultures in the ancient Near East practiced the custom which is called leveret marriage. Hang with me here. Basically, here's what happens. 
the widow marries the next oldest brother-in-law, and any children from that marriage are counted as children of the deceased brother. Okay? They kind of fill the vacant spot on the family tree. This provided a heritage as well as an avenue for fulfillment and provision for the widow. For the widow. Now to us, this just sounds creepy. Like Andy and I were talking about it. It's my wife, for those of you who don't know. And she just said, gross. All of it just sounds gross and awkward and no thank you. And I'm in complete agreement. I'm glad we have not uh, gone down that road. Right? Like, who cares if there's a vacant spot on the family tree? Move on. But in this society, they highly valued the continuation of the family line. And this practice made provision to ensure that your family name would continue. In fact, to die without a descendant was to be erased from history. This was an utter calamity in the ancient world. So they were willing to go through hard things so that that would not happen. And who do you think gets the blame and all of the shame if they're barren? The women. The shame always fell on her for failing literally to deliver. So Tamar is given to Onan in marriage, and he's given the responsibility to raise up an offspring for his brother. Look what it says in verse 9. But Onan knew that his offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. As if one wicked husband weren't enough, Tamar is subjected to the sexual abuse of her second husband. See, instead of trying to impregnate her and fulfill his responsibility, he used her for pleasure every time they came together. So to her already existing shame, he adds insult to injury. Now the Bible gives us some insight into Onan's greedy motive. You see, in their culture, the firstborn son gets a double portion of the father's inheritance. So let me do some math with you real quick and hang with me. Pastors aren't known for their math skills. So if there's three sons, the inheritance is split up into four portions. The older son would get the double portion. He would get two-fourths, a half, right? And the other sons get a quarter each. So with Ergon, Onan's inheritance went from a quarter to two-thirds That's an increase of over 40%. If Onan fulfills his duty as a brother and provides a son to Tamar, Tamar and her new son would get the original 50% of the inheritance. So Onan stood to lose financially uh, in this exchange, and he was not about to give up his newly found inheritance. And so like his brother, the Lord judged his wickedness and put him to death. In his resolve to secure and preserve his financial holdings, it ultimately cost him his life. Now, the upshot is Tamar is relieved of the oppression of her second husband, but once again, she's a childless widow. So if you're still tracking in the story, that leaves one more son, doesn't it? His name is Shelah, verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Now at this point, Shelah is legitimately too young to get married. So that buys Judah some time. So he tells her, hey, go back to your father's house until Shelah grows up. 
Now, in this culture, when she, she has joined Judah's family, she's not supposed to go back. But Judah's willing to add further shame on top of all the other shame she already has to dishonor her and to send her as far away from his family as possible. And the narrator tells us that he had no intention whatsoever of giving her to Shelah. I mean, think about it. Judah's chances of having a family line are starting to dwindle. I mean, he's losing sons like, uh, like flies. This is his last son, and he has grown superstitious about Tamar. I mean, to him, she's a bad omen. And he's completely unaware. He lacks the self-awareness to realize that his son's wickedness is actually on his shoulders as a dad. He's failed as a father. And more than that, as the father and the head of this family, it's his job to protect and provide for Tamar like a daughter. But instead, he blames her for his calamity and he sends her packing. He has no intention of her ever coming near Shelah. And she's forced to go back in shame to her father's house. Now think about it. Even if someone were to ever look and see Tamar and want to take her as a wife, though she would, that, that's uh, very unlikely. She would have been seen as damaged goods. There would have been this bad omen around her. Hey, you marry her, you end up dead, right? Nobody wants to go into that. She's unable to marry someone else because he's essentially bound her to Shelah. He's betrothed her to her. So she's trapped. He tells her, go home. Don't call us, we'll call you, right? And he washes his hands of her without regard for the vulnerable, shameful, and dishonorable way he has kicked her out the door. I hope you see Tamar's rejection is of epic proportion. To her, she wasn't worth the effort of righteous living. To Onan, she wasn't worth the money that he would lose. To Judah, she wasn't worth the risk. To Shayla, she wasn't worth speaking up for. Do you see Tamar's predicament? Do you see her rejection? Now let's see her risk. The next few verses I'll kind of summarize, but it tells us that Shayla grows up and total shocker, no one calls Tamar, right? She's still in her father's house. She's a childless widow. She's betrothed to Shayla, unable to marry anyone else, and she's trapped. And we also learn that Judah's wife dies. And so after a period of mourning, he returns to work as a shepherd. And the Bible tells us it's the season for shearing sheep. And as Tamar realizes that Judah has no intention of giving her to Shelah, she springs into action. I mean, this whole story, she's been the passive recipient. She's been passed over. She's been abused. And now she takes matters into her own hands. Verse 14. She took off her widow's garments and she covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. So the Bible says that she describes her, disguises herself as a prostitute in order to set a trap for Judah. You could feel the tension in the story rising as she's risking it all. If she's found out, make no mistake about it, she will be put to death this is her last-ditch effort to secure a son and a future for her. Now, you also need to know, in her day, the Leverite custom allowed for the father-in-law to raise up offspring as well for his deceased son. Now, of course, 
That's also creepy. And Judah has not offered to do so. But Tamar seizes an opportunity to deceive Judah, the deceiver. Now, some struggle with this and and ask, why would she do it? Some just see the word prostitute and they write her off completely. Carolyn James, a commentator, writes this. The word prostitute leaps off the page and begins to color everything we think about Tamar. The judicial gavel comes crashing down on her, and with that word, she is tried, convicted, and sentenced with no possibility of parole. I want to offer to you that she is in a moral dilemma of epic proportion. She is in a highly complicated situation, and it's very difficult for us to see because of the cultural distance. It's hard for us because when we hear the word prostitute, all we hear is scandal. It's hard for us to see because we've never been in her shoes. But I want us to see her today. No one in her life has seen her so far. Let's not add to the blind and different eyes who've overlooked her her whole life. She is a victim in this story. She's been put in a precarious and vulnerable position without any options at her disposal. There's, there's, there's no way that this is something she's excited to do. I guarantee you she wants nothing to do with this family. She's experienced enough pain and abuse from Judah and his sons. She's not looking for a new career. That's not what this is about. She's not a temptress in her heart of hearts. She's not even looking for payback or revenge. She's looking for some semblance of justice and a future. She's looking for honor and the continuation of her family line. See, she lives in a society where she has no legal rights to make her case. There's no halls of the courts of justice that she can walk down and say, help me. There's no economic opportunity. There's no upward mobility. She's damaged goods with the stench of an apparent curse hanging over her life. Nobody wants her. And so she's stuck. She is out of options, and so she makes a call. It may not be the right call, but ethics and morality are much easier for us to do in our armchairs, sipping coffee 4,000 years later, looking back into the pages of history. She goes all in, puts it on the line, and risks it all. I mean, what if Judah notices her? What if he just passes her by? What if another John comes calling? What if she doesn't get pregnant? All of these are real possibilities. Do you feel her tension? Do you feel her predicament? So as the story goes, Judah makes his way through Anayim, and Judah sees Tamar, but he doesn't recognize her. It's also providentially ironic that the name of the town where all of this takes place, Anayim, means the opening of the eyes, right? His eyes are open to the prospect of illicit sex, but he doesn't recognize. His eyes aren't open to the reality that it's his daughter-in-law. His inability to recognize her is another glaring indictment on just how little she mattered to him. I mean, think about what little attention he must have paid to her not to recognize her. She was nothing to him. But predictably, Judah takes the bait which also says something about him as well, doesn't it? So the negotiations begin, and she skillfully plays the part. 
He promises a young goat in exchange for her sexual services. But as it turns out, he doesn't have it on him. So it's basically like him saying, hey, here's the deal. I don't have any cash on me right now. So she says, okay, that's fine. But you're going to have to give me some collateral, some kind of promise that I know you're going to come back. So she says, how about you give me your signet, your cord, and your staff? This is the modern-day equivalent of handing over his driver's license, social security card, and his credit card, right? He's going to come back for those things. And if she becomes pregnant, they'll serve as the, uh, the perfect paternity test uh, to prove that Judah is the father. So he gives them to her, and they seal the deal. Now they part ways. She quickly changes back into her widow's clothing, and the narrator tells us that her plan works, and she becomes pregnant. So Judah now knows he needs to go back, grab a goat, and get his collateral back and make payment without causing a stir. He's essentially left his wallet at the brothel, okay? His neck and his reputation are on the line. But he doesn't want to risk being found out, and so he sends a friend. Hey, buddy, would you do this for me, right? Such a coward. Sends his friend with the goat to find the prostitute. So his friend starts asking around quietly, but trying to figure out, hey, have you seen her? And no one has seen her. And so Judah figures, maybe she skipped town. He might as well cut his losses and quit asking around her. He's going to become the laughingstock of the community. So at this point, Tamar's been rejected and she's risked it all. Let's look at the last few verses to see her redemption. Verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she's pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Okay, so three months go by, and you can't hide a pregnancy, right, at some point. And people notice that Tamar is pregnant. More shame is heaped on her. I want you to feel that as she's found out. And in a patriarchal society, Judah, as the head of the family, has life and death power over her. It just seems inconceivable that he could just declare it, but that's the way it was back then. He can make the call to have her killed for her immorality. And without a trial, without a single question, she's tried, convicted, condemned, and sentenced. His response is abrupt and horrific. Meanwhile, he knows he's done the exact same thing three months ago, yet he sees this as an opportunity to get rid of this cursed woman. He blames her for the death of his sons. He blames her for the cloud over his family. And now with her gone, he's able to find a new wife for his son, Shayla. He's grown hardened and dark. I mean, so far in his life, we've seen that he's capable of murder, He's dabbled in human trafficking. He's learned how to cover up his tracks of deceit. He devastated his father. And now he's added illicit sex with a prostitute to his rap sheet. And he stands as judge over her. His response is burn her. It's, a, it's as clear a double standard as you'll ever find. They're both guilty, but he gives himself the pass while she gets to burn. Verse 25, as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify who these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. Now, unlike Judah, who publicly shamed her, she sends him a private word. I love that. What integrity. 
Here's the signet ring, the cord, and the staff. If you can identify these, you'll know who the father is if you'd like to further your investigation. Verse 26, then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. Of course, he recognizes them. His hypocrisy is staring him right in the face, and he's floored. One minute he condemns, the next minute he stands condemned. And the next words out of his mouth reverse his prior judgment and sentence. It's like when he sees his staff in his signet ring, it acts like a mirror. And he finally sees himself for who he really is. Maybe, just maybe, he sees himself for the first time. And the one holding the mirror is none other than a very pregnant Tamar who's also holding his child. He finally sees her for the first time and says, she was way more righteous than I. Now Tamar had deceived Judah, yes. She had engaged in a sexual ploy that certainly raises some red flags on our moral radar. Even given the complicated moral dilemma, what she does has to be seen as sinful, though certainly understandable. She pursued what the law intended her to pursue, but she does so through unrighteous methods. And yet, Judah comes to a profound conclusion. At the end of the day, his sin was worse. He was the one who put her in this situation. He neglected his word and his responsibility to care for this woman that he's taken into his family. He had the power and the means and opportunity to provide and protect her, yet he violates and victimizes her. And finally, at the very end, his words vindicate her. See, what this passage makes clear is that the brunt of the blame is on Judah and his wicked sons. See, if they hadn't acted selfish and wicked, she would never have been put in such a predicament. See, at the end of the day, she's not perfect or sinless, but she is declared to be the more righteous one. Her deception and taking matters into her own hands was not as wicked as Judah, uh, his deception and abdication of his role as protector and provider. See, one of the great temptations when we read this passage is to miss seeing Tamar to only see her sin. I think one of the points of this passage is that we can't miss seeing her. Moses, the author of Genesis, saw her, didn't he? He writes the story in such a way that she comes out to be the victimized hero of the story. King David and his son Absalom, they saw her. They named their daughters after her. Think about that. You don't name, no one's naming their, their kid Hitler, right? They saw her. The apostle Matthew saw her and included her in his genealogy of Christ. You know that when he writes that, everyone's going to remember, oh yeah, Tamar. We know what happened there. He could just have easily have not included that and kept it clean, but he doesn't. I also believe God saw her, and he poured out his wrath and judgment on her perpetrators and her evil husbands, and ultimately found her not guilty in her trial against Judah. The question we need to ask is, do you see her? She's ultimately redeemed in this story. She's restored to her family. 
I love that it says Judah never sleeps with her again. She's given provision in a home. Her honor is restored. And she's able to raise her children. And that's right, I said children. We come to find out she's pregnant with twins. Not only does she get one son, but she gets two. And when the time came for her delivery, there was a struggle in the womb as to who would be born first. In fact, it's, it's kind of comical. One son sticks his hand out, and the midwife sees it and says, hey, that's the firstborn. And she ties a, a red scarlet thread around his wrist, and then the, the wrist goes back in. It's crazy, right? I mean, I've seen five live births. I've never seen that before. He drew back his hand, but the other son, Perez, overtook his brother and came out. Now, technically, the other son, Zara, is the firstborn, but Perez comes out first. They name him Perez because his name means breakthrough. He broke through and came out first. Even though Zara was the firstborn, it's through the line of Perez that leads to the birth of King David, who eventually leads to the birth of Jesus Christ. God accomplished his plan of redemption through the broken mess of regular, everyday, broken people just like you and me. I mean, we have to see in this story, it seems like there's no hope for redemption at all. There is nothing good that can come out of this story whatsoever. And possibly Tamar never saw any of it. She does not have the vantage point that we have looking back through the pages of history. God could have accomplished his mission more efficiently, more effectively, much more cleanly. But God shows up in our mess to bring about redemption. How many of you here have messy lives? And you wonder, how could God ever use a wretch like me? And you say, Pastor, but you don't know my story. I don't have to know your story. I know my story. It's filled with the same mess. It's filled with the same shame. It's filled with the same guilt. And yet God uses broke down people like you and me. He shows up in our ashes and brings about beauty. God is in control and he's working even when it seems like he's absent. And here's the cool part of this story. Not only does Tamar find redemption, but Judah finds redemption as well. It's not as, as apparent in this passage, but if you flip forward in the pages of Scripture, you'll see Judah experiences transformation and redemption as well. Later in the book of Genesis, we see a new Judah. We find out he actually goes back home. Think about that. What would it take for him to go back home and start to take care of his aging father, to be a leader among his brothers. Several years later, we find out that Judah's in another tough situation, and his younger brother Benjamin's life is at risk, and Judah offers his life in exchange for Benjamin. Now, does that sound like the Judah that we've been talking about, this selfish, wicked, looking out for number one kind of guy? Absolutely not. He's willing to sacrifice his life for another, and God used Tamar not only to bring about the savior of the world, but he uses her to bring about Judah's redemption as well. It's fascinating. Tamar was rejected and she risked it all and found redemption. And as grace would have it, Judah finds redemption as well. So you might be asking, how is this at all an Advent sermon? 
This is how God chose to bring about the Savior of the world. Advent means a coming, an arrival, a breaking in. And through brokenness, through despair, through hopelessness, God breaks in. So a couple of quick applications as we close. The first is this. This story tells us that we need to be a people who seek justice. Tamar was forced into a moral dilemma, and she suffered injustice at the hands of men who should have protected and provided for her. So what can we learn from that? See, Advent is about light shining in the darkness. It's about hope and peace and love, because when Jesus comes, wherever he is, he brings hope. So if you are in Christ, wherever you go, you bring Jesus to. You should be bringing hope and light into the dark places where God has you. Where there's injustice and you can do something about it, you should. The gospel compels us to give voice to the voiceless and to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Now, guys, I know the problems seem so big. Racism, sexism, poverty, inequality, educational disparities, religious freedom. They're huge, but we can actually work to bring about light into the darkness. And these aren't political realities. These impact real people. And because people matter to God, they become gospel issues. Social work is not the same as gospel work, but hear me, helping people in need provides an avenue for the gospel. They're not the same thing, but one is used by the gospel. See, people care about what you have to say when they know that you actually care. Let's not be a people who swing to either side of the pendulum in this debate. Let's be like Jesus, who entered into the social issues of his day, offered a hand, and at the same time, offered them the hope of the gospel. Maybe this simply means we start to have conversations with people who are oppressed, who are experiencing inequality, and just hear their story. That was my story. As I started going, how can I help? I felt like there was nothing I could do. Step one was ask questions and just listen. Don't believe all the talking heads. Hear someone's actual story. Number two, we need to learn to grieve what's been done to us and grieve our response of what's been done to us. See, Advent is also about healing because wherever Jesus is, there's healing. See, at some point in our lives, almost every one of us, to one degree or another, is going to become a victim. And we've been the victim. And at many times, not only do we suffer from what's been done to us, we suffer in addition because we respond poorly. I heard a Christian female abuse survivor who eventually became a biblical counselor share her testimony. And one thing she said floored me and it stuck with me. These are her words. She said, to find healing... I had to let myself grieve what was done to me. And later, for that healing to go deeper, to find complete healing, I had to grieve my response to what was done to me. And I know that seems backwards, because in our culture, we say if you're a victim, you're automatically innocent. No matter what you do in response, is it may be understandable, but it's not sinful. Being a victim doesn't mean our response is always righteous. Likely, there are reactions and responses that are sinful, understandable yet sinful. 
There's abuse in my background, and it has led to anger that, that sought to wreck and ravage my soul. And it wasn't until I finally started saying, I don't get a pass on that. I don't get to say I'm angry because he was angry. I had to grieve what was done to me, and I also had to learn to grieve my response to what was done to me. And it wasn't until then that I actually started to find healing. Not anger management, but actual healing from the anger. So no matter what your abuse is, it's likely that there's been some responses on your behalf that need to be repented of and grieved as well so that that healing can go deep. Given enough time and intentional processing our wounds, we can find healing in Christ. Last thing, I'm almost done. Everyone needs a savior. If there is one thing when you read this passage, you go, everybody needs Jesus up in here. You guys ever seen those shirts that say, y'all need Jesus? When I read this passage, I was like, y'all need Jesus. Everybody needs Christ. Everyone needs Jesus. Everyone seems unredeemable, don't they? Everyone seems too far gone. Damaged goods. Judah looked for approval and acceptance. And when he didn't get it, what happened? It crushed him. And he started crushing others. It turned him into a dark, bitter person. Tamar is damaged goods and resorts to prostitution to find justice. She's been victimized and forced to take matters in her hands. And it seems like nothing could ever cover that shame. But here's the stark reality. In the wake of it all, both Judah and Tamar need the truly righteous, innocent victim to cover their righteousness. You see, there's only ever been one truly innocent victim whose response to his suffering and abuse has been completely and totally righteous. See, Jesus had to grieve what was done to him, but he's the only person who's never had to grieve his response to what was done to him. He is the light shining through in this passage, and both Tamar and Judah ultimately find their redemption in his love. And the same goes for you and me. God is always doing more than we can see. For the one tiny thing that you see going on in your life, God is up to 10,000 more things that you just can't possibly see right now. We often only see a fraction of our story, and we too quickly conclude, that's it, there's no hope for me. Friends, that's way too narrow of a view. There's more going on. We have to look at the bigger picture and ask, what is the bigger and greater story that Jesus is writing with your life? I promise you he's writing something, and it's beautiful. When it looks like sin is going to win, that's when Jesus breaks through. We all need to hear Jesus say to us this morning, if you will trust in me, despite your sin, you can be righteous. We long to hear what Tamar needed to hear. It's what Judah needed to hear as well. And that's what Advent tells us. Advent tells us Jesus is here. And if you'll put your trust in him, you can hear him say, you are righteous. Let's pray.